Let us pray as we begin. Father, we ask that you would help us to behold, as we just sang. We know that we can do it on our own. We can behold you with our physical eyes. But we need the eyes of faith. We need you to open our eyes because unless you give sight, no one will see. Father, my prayer that as we embark on this journey, that you would work in our hearts in such a way that we would behold Christ. Spirit of God, we know that it is your job here, and it is your assignment to point people to Christ, to illumine our minds, to illumine our hearts to see Christ. And so we ask, we ask that as we come to this book, that you would do that. We pray for those who have not yet seen Christ, who have heard of him. We pray, Lord, that you would illumine their minds even today as we fly through this book, that they would see Christ. And then as we work our way through this book, verse by verse, that we would behold him and we would believe in him and that our faith and our trust in Him would deepen as a result of this study. We need you. We can't do this on our own. And so we ask for your presence, and we ask for your power to mightily display itself here today. We pray this for your glory. Amen. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. As we've said many times already, today we are embarking on this journey, which will take us a few years to complete. It will take us a few years because this is a large book. It has 21 chapters, 879 verses, and almost 16,000 words. And every single one of those words is inspired by God and therefore profitable for us. Now, our goal will be over the next probably two years is to examine every word, every phrase, every sentence so that we may understand the message of this book. And in the coming weeks, we will do that beginning in verse 1 all the way until we get through chapter 21, verse 25. But today my assignment is different. Before we get into the details, I want us to have a helicopter view of this book. What I want us to do today is to fly through 21 chapters so that we can have an idea of the journey that we are embarking on. No doubt you have done this before in your life. You're going to a place or a city that you have never been to. And so you go on Google Maps, and with technology that we have today, you're able to walk the streets of that place without even being there, but just by sitting at your computer. Now, in a sense, that's what I want us to do today. I want us to sit here today, and I want us to zoom out and have this Google Maps view of the book of John. And before we actually walk the streets, I want us to look from above so that we don't miss the forest for the trees. I want us to walk away today having this big picture so that we know where we're going. Now to do so, we'll follow a simple outline consisting of four questions. First, we'll answer the question, who? Now this is a preliminary question, and we'll answer that because we want to now know who wrote this book. Second preliminary question is going to be when? We're not going to spend much time here, but we'll venture to guess as to the date when this book was written. Third, we'll answer a very important question, and that question is why. Why was this book written? Now, the answer to this question is very important because the answer to this question determines how we understand things that are contained in this book. I mean, sometimes you come across a passage of Scripture and you're like, man, why'd you write this here? What's the point of this? 
But if the author tells you exactly why he wrote it, then it's much easier for you to interpret. And if we understand why this book was written, then we're going to get to difficult passages or difficult sayings and some of the signs, and you'll be like, why, why did he do that? And John tells you, I wrote this so that you know this, and we'll talk about what this is. And finally, we will spend most of our time answering the final question, and that question is what? What is in this book? And at this point, is that's when you buckle up your seatbelts and grease your fingers, because we're going to fly through 21 chapters of this book. And don't worry, you won't be late for dinner. <laughs> now, as you walked in, you received a summary chart of this book, and that chart is kind of a help to you to see where we are because I put that together so that you kind of see the big picture and at the top of it you have the content of this book and that is the section that we'll focus on with this last point, what? Join me as I begin reading in John chapter 1 and we'll read the introduction, the prologue. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18. John writes this, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was light, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and, and cried out, saying, this was, he, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Let us begin with question number one. Who? Who wrote the Gospel of John? Now, this is an important question because nowhere does the author of the Gospel of John identify himself as John. Now, we know this as the Gospel of John, and you have a heading that is not inspired, but you have this, the Gospel according to John. How do we know that John wrote this? Now, we can go into church history, and we can know that very early on in the second century, Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John himself, he wrote that according to Polycarp, John wrote this Gospel from Ephesus. Now, by the end of the second century, pretty much everyone in the church agreed as to the authorship, authenticity, and the authority of this gospel. Now, we can read a lot of, and people sacrifice a lot of trees trying to prove that John wrote this or didn't write this. And you know, church history is helpful, but church history is not authoritative. 
our job and our goal is to look at the internal evidence that we have in the book itself to figure out if there is a clue as to who the author of this book is. Now, while the author of this book does not identify himself by name, he does give himself a title. And that title, title is this, The Disciple Whom Jesus Loved. Listen to this, or you can look in your Bibles. John 13, 23 is the first time this appears. There was reclining at Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. The same disciple is later seen at the cross. In John 19, 26, it says, When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. After the resurrection, we read that Mary ran and came to Simon Peter and to another disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid them. In the final chapter of this book, we read this in verse 7, John 21, 7, it says, Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord and put his outer garments on for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. And the final appearance of this title is in John 21, 20, where we read this, Peter turning around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So what do we know about this disciple whom Jesus loved? Well, based on this, we can tell that he was one of the 12 disciples. We know that because when Jesus got together with his disciples, according to Mark chapter 14, verse 17, when they got together for the final Passover, there were only 12 disciples in Jesus. Because Mark 14, 17 says, when, the evening, when it was evening, he came with the 12, and they were reclining at the table and eating. Now notice in the passages that are read to you, this disciple whom Jesus loved is always distinguished from Peter. So we know that this disciple is not Peter. Now we have a further clue as to who this disciple is in John 21. You remember what happens in John 21 is when the disciples go fishing after Jesus' resurrection. They go fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And according to John 21 too, there are seven disciples mentioned there. If you look at John 21, verse 2, it says, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and the two other of his disciples were together. So notice there are seven disciples here. There's Peter, Thomas, Nathanael, sons of Zebedee, and those are James and John. And then there's two other disciples that are not named. Now we know that this disciple whom Jesus loved is one of these seven. We know that he's not Peter. He's not Thomas, he's not Nathaniel. We know that he cannot be James, and we know that because James was the first apostle who was executed very early on in Acts chapter 12. Now, this book was written much later than that, so we know it was not James. So we're left with John or two other apostles whose names are not given to us in this section. Now, based on the Synoptic Gospels, the first three Gospels, we know that Apostle John played a very significant role in the life of Jesus. In fact, John was one disciple who was one of the three who were closest to Jesus, right? We have Peter, James, and John. Those are the three disciples who were in the inner circle with Jesus. What is interesting is that when you read the Gospel of John, Neither John or James are ever mentioned by name. 
And here they are. These are two disciples who play very prominent role. Now, based on 21, we know that it's not Peter, because Peter is talking to the disciple who was leaning on Jesus' bosom. We know that it's not James, because James is already executed. Another interesting clue is given to us when John talks about John the Baptist. You recall that in every other gospel, when he speaks or the, or where the author introduces John the Baptist, he always identifies him as John the Baptist, at least when he's introducing him. And yet, when you come to the Gospel of John, John simply says, John. In other words, if John is writing, he doesn't feel the need to distinguish himself from the other apostles because that is the reason why they distinguish the apostles between John and John the Baptist. So therefore, if we narrow it down of the seven disciples, the only one who can have such a prominent role as the one who's writing this Gospel, it could be John. It could be none other than John. It has to be an apostle. He has to be there with Jesus. It can be James. It can be Peter. It can be one of the other two. Possibly, but unlikely, that the other two that are not mentioned. But John, in his humility, or perhaps the reason why he describes himself as apostle whom Jesus loved, is because he's writing this gospel, and he takes all the light, and he shines it on Christ and not on himself. What's interesting, if you read the book of Revelation, in chapter 1 in the book of Revelation, John identifies himself by name like four or five times. Just in the opening, I, John, I, John, I, John. And here, in this book, he says, Christ, Christ, Christ. It's not about John. So therefore, based on the internal evidence, we can conclude that the apostle who wrote this gospel is the apostle of John. And both internal evidence and historical accounts confirm that fact. Now, who was the gospel written to? Because you read some of the books of the New Testament, and it says, uh, you know, Paul to Galatians, for example, right? We know who's writing, we know who, to whom he's writing, but neither recipients or the location are mentioned in this book. We simply do not know. Now let's consider the second preliminary question, and that question is when. When did John write this gospel? Now first, what internal evidence do we have to determine the date of this book? Listen to what Jesus said to Peter when he recommissioned him in John 21. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, this is after Jesus' resurrection. And then John gives this editorial comment in the following verse. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of debt he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Notice John is writing this, knowing how Peter was executed. Knowing what happened to Peter. Now according to history, and if we put it together, Paul's writings, or Peter's writings, right? We know that he was gone around 68 A.D., Therefore, this book could not have been written prior to 68 AD because John already knows how Peter died because that was fulfillment of Jesus' words here in John 21. There's another clue here. In John 21, verse 20, it says, Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had, been, who had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord... And what about this man? 
Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that it's been a long time since Jesus ascended to heaven. Because this saying went out and people started believing that, yeah, John is going to be around. By this time when he's writing this, he's the only living apostles. All the apostles are gone. John is the only living apostle. And so many people think like, okay, it's going to, it's going to happen soon because John is very old. So Jesus is going to come back. And John says, no, he didn't actually say that I'm going to be around for that long. But he must have been around for a very long time after the ascension. Now, according to most conservative scholars, they believe that the Gospel of John was written between 80 and 90 A.D. We don't know the exact date, but it was written sometime in that period. John is the last living apostle, and at the end of his life, he writes not only this Gospel, but he also writes three other books. 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. According to tradition, John was boiled in oil, and he survived, after which they sentenced him to the island of Patmos. And you remember he wrote the book of Revelation from the island of Patmos. I mean, what do you do with a guy if you boil him in oil and he still doesn't die? All you got to do is just send him to an island. And that's what they did. And that's where he wrote the book of Revelation. So most likely it is written somewhere between 80 and 90 AD. Let's consider the third question. Why? Why? Now here we don't have to speculate because John tells us exactly why he wrote the book. Like I said, with some books, it is easier to determine that because the authors themselves tell you why they wrote this book. I want you to turn there, or you could look at your chart. That verse is there. In John chapter 20, in verse 30, he gives the reason why he wrote this book. John chapter 20, verse 30, it says this, Therefore, Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things have been written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Thank you, John. That's pretty clear. See, this is the lens through which we will interpret everything in this gospel. Why is this text here? Why is he saying that? Well, John tells you, I have put this together so that you may know. First, he says, I wrote this so that you may believe. Notice you have a list of key words there that are mentioned in the book of John. The most used word in this gospel is the word know, which is actually two words in Greek, and it is used 147 times. The second word that is most used in this gospel is this word, believe. You'll see that it is mentioned 98 times. John composed this account. He composed this book so that his readers would believe. Now, what is it that John wants his readers to believe? He says here that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You see, this is what this book does. This book builds a case that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God. 
You see, John carefully selects specific miracles and testimonies of eyewitnesses, which he compiles into one book by which he builds a case that proves that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Now notice here when it says that Jesus is the Christ. We've said this before, but it's worth repeating that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is his title as a Messiah. It comes from a Hebrew word, Mashiach, which means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were certain individuals who were anointed, the prophets, the priests, and the kings. And the anointed one would be the one who would come, who would be the Messiah. And so when they were waiting for the anointed one, they were waiting for the Messiah. The Greek equivalent of uh, Messiah in the Old Testament, or Mashiach, is Christos, from which we get the word Christ. If you look at John chapter 1, verse 40, it says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found Messiah. And then John adds this note here, which is translated, means Christ. Messiah means Christ. So when John says, I wrote this gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, he's saying, I wrote this gospel to give you a definitive case to prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament. Not only that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God. John builds a careful case to prove that Jesus is fully divine. In fact, he begins the book, as we'll see in just a second, and he reaches back as far as you can, like the book of Genesis begins, in the beginning, God. And John says, in the beginning was the Word. He reaches back as far as he can to say that this one that is the Messiah is the one who always existed. He is the pre-incarnate Christ. He is fully God, and he is fully man. Now, while you may not be able to square the circle, you cannot get around the evidence presented in this book to deny either his humanity or his deity. You might not be able to make sense of it, but he is fully divine and he is fully human. Why should you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? I mean, John compiles this whole book, this lengthy book, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And you ask, okay, why should I believe that? Well, look at his answer. And that believing you may have life in his name. Notice this word life is also a key word that is used 39 times. And let me assure you that every single person here has eternal life. The only question is the quality of that life. You will live forever. Every single person will live forever. Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 10. John 10, 10 it says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. This abundant life that Jesus offers to those who believe in him is described in the Gospel of John as eternal life. It is the eternal life that those who place their faith in Christ receive. And as this life is described here, it is an abundant life. Abundant in blessing, not abundant in pain as it is for everyone else. Now, based on this statement here, we could see that the Gospel of John is an evangelistic gospel. Because John is writing either to those who are not completely convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, or those who are wondering if he is, or maybe those even who deny that he is. And he says, listen, I was an eyewitness. I walked with Jesus. I was with him, 
And let me tell you about him. And this is my case to prove to you that Jesus is the promised Messiah. I would like you to turn to one more passage, and that is John chapter 6, verse 40. Now you will see that this text here, it's also in your chart, and this is a parallel text to the key passage in chapter 20 that we just read. Listen to these words, John 6, 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up On the last day. Now you can see how this is a parallel passage to that of John chapter 20 because you have similar references here. You have a reference to the Son, you have the reference to belief, you have the reference to eternal life. Notice what Jesus says here It is God's will for you to behold and believe in the Son so that you may have eternal life. This is a compelling case for us that Christ is the one who he said he is. That what the Old Testament said of Christ has been fulfilled in the person we know as Jesus. That's why we chose this title for this series, Behold and Believe, the compelling case for Christ. Because John says here that everyone who number one beholds, Now again, you can't behold them with your eyes, your physical eyes. You can't wait for Jesus to show up to you in a vision. But you know what? You can read the passages that are described here, that John put here, and you can see them with your spiritual eyes. You can listen to the account and the portrait that he paints, and you're either going to accept it or you're going to reject it. You're either going to be like the disciples who says, you are the Son of God, or you're going to be like the Jews who rejected him and says, kill him. That's the only response that you will have. One of those two responses will describe you. And our goal over the next two years is to walk through this book and to paint this portrait of Christ as we accurately present what John wrote. So that as you listen, as you read, as you meditate on this gospel, you will truly behold Christ. And not only that you would behold Christ and be amazed with Him, notice it says that you would behold and believe in Him. You see, if you're not trusting Christ, our hope and our prayer is that as we walk through this book, you will be trusting Him. If you're trusting Him and you are saved, our hope is that your knowledge of Christ would deepen. Our love, your love and appreciation for Him would deepen much more. So you're like, okay, I didn't understand this about Christ. Wow, that is amazing. Why? Because His Word tells us about Christ. That is the only way you're going to know Christ because the Scripture reveals Him to us. Our hope is that by the time we're done, there is going to be effect on all of us. You remember what happened to Peter and and John when they stood before the Jewish council in Acts chapter 4? In Acts chapter 4, verse 13 says, Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. You see, it's not just their physical presence that they recognize as, that, as those who were disciples of Jesus. But you see, the presence of Jesus left an indelible mark on them. So when they saw their confidence, they're like, man, this guy must have been with Jesus. And our prayer is that by the time we're done with this gospel, people would look at you and people would look at me and all of us and say, man, these people have been with Jesus because they've been hanging out with Jesus for the entire book. That's why John wrote this book. 
This is the lens that will help us interpret everything that John said. Now, all this was just introduction. Now we're ready for the main question. And the question is what? What? This is why John wrote this. But what did he write? What is in this book? And what we want to do right now is we want to get into your helicopter and we want to fly over every chapter and just give you a survey and touch down on certain passages and certain verses that will show us, okay, this is the roadmap. This is where we go and this is where John is going so that we can understand what John wrote. The Gospel of John, as we read, begins with the prologue. And in this gospel, in this opening section, John introduces us to Christ. And as I said earlier, he reaches back as far as he could. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the first nine verses of this chapter, John presents to us the pre-incarnate Christ, which means that Christ existed before he came into this world. You see, you and I have a beginning at conception when Christ was conceived in Mary's womb, that was not his beginning. Because he always existed. And that's the point that John makes in this first section. In fact, everything that exists, according to verse 3, was made through him. And in verse 9, this pre-incarnate Christ, he becomes one of us. He comes into this world as light into the darkness. The eternal Christ puts on human flesh. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. He comes to His own people. He comes to the nation of Israel, and they reject Him. Verse 11 says, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. And then He has this, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. What is the key theme here? Belief. And why did they believe? Because, not because they were so smart, not because they were brilliant, because they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God is sovereign over salvation. And that starts here in chapter 1. And Jesus came in order to reveal God to us. Look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Jesus exegeted God for us. You could not know the Father unless you know Christ, and that's why He came. Now this is the prologue, and we'll look at all the details later on. And from here, I want you to notice the structure of the rest of the book. The first major section of this book begins in chapter 1, verse 19, and it goes all the way through the end of chapter 12. You see there, it is marked as public ministry of Christ. In the first 12 chapters, we see all Jesus' interactions with the Jewish leaders, with the crowds, with the people. And this is public ministry of Christ. So for the first 12 chapters, from chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through the end of chapter 12, this is public ministry of Christ. Beginning in chapter 13, all the way through the end of the book, we can call it private ministry of Christ. Because you remember in chapter 13, this is upper room. Jesus goes, washes the disciples' feet, and then you got the whole discourse that goes all the way through chapter 18. After that, Jesus is crucified, and after his crucifixion, he appears to his disciples. So there is no more public ministry of Christ to the crowd or to anyone else. So the first 12 chapters is the public ministry of Christ. Now let's begin with a quick flyover over the public ministry of Christ. Look at verse 19. In verse 19, we're introduced to John the Baptist. 
Now, as I said here, John is building a compelling case for Christ. So what he does here is he compiles credible witnesses who give their testimony as to who Christ is. The first witness is John. Look at verse 23. This is his testimony. He says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. John came as a witness to point to Christ. And that's exactly what he does in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in verse 34, John the Baptist is the first one to testify that Jesus is the Son of God. Listen to verse 34. I myself have seen and have testified that this one is the Son of God. As you continue to read through chapter 1, in the remainder of this chapter, we have the testimony of the first apostles. First up is Andrew. Andrew, who was a disciple of John, but left John, John the Baptist, and he left John the Baptist and joined Jesus. He finds Peter and tells him this in verse 41. We have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. That is the first testimony of the first apostle. This is Christ. Second up is Philip who tells Nathanael this in verse 45, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Once Nathanael means Jesus, listen to his declaration in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So what's going on here? Notice from the very opening verses of this book, John compiles one credible witness after another who confirm that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah. That is the point, because this book is written in order to tell you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now you will notice that all these events take place in Galilee. You have their transitions, you'll see in your chart. Jesus moves from Galilee to Judea, back to Galilee, back to Judea. Then there is one section where he goes to Perea, then one section where he goes to Samaria. But notice, this opening section here happens in Galilee. Now, this is unique to the Gospel of John, because all the other Gospels, they start Jesus' ministry in Judea. But according to John, we know that Jesus began his ministry in Galilee. In chapter 2, we have the first sign that Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. Now again, commentators divide as to the number of signs that we have in the book of John. But we're going to stick to number six. And the reason why we're going to stick to number six is because those are the signs that John specifically identifies as signs. Now there are other miracles like Jesus is walking on water, right? There are other texts that say, you know, Jesus performed many signs, but they don't, they're not identified specifically which ones they are. So John specifically says there are six signs, and you have a number of them there on the bottom of your chart. What is the purpose of signs? Again, you remember the key verse in John 20, 30. He says, therefore, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written. But these have been written so that you may believe. What is a sign? Sign points you to something. Like you're driving on a freeway and it says, Folsom. Sign doesn't mean Folsom. Sign points you to an exit, which is Folsom, right? In the same way, when you read of the signs that Jesus performs, these wonders, this, these miracles that he performed, the point is not the sign in and of itself, but as to what it says about Christ. That is the point. And that is the point of all the signs that we have recorded for us. Now, the first sign 
is in chapter 2 where Jesus turns water into wine. And look at verse 11. It says, The beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. Why? Because he really cared about their wine. No. He manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The sign pointed to the identity of Christ. After that, according to verse 12, they traveled to Capernaum. And this concludes Jesus' initial ministry in Galilee. In chapter 2, verse 13, we have the first Passover mentioned in the book of John. 2.13 says, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now you will note on your chart that there are three Passovers that are explicitly mentioned in the Gospel of John, and I'll point them out as we go. When Jesus shows up to Jerusalem the first time, he begins with the major house cleanup. Because according to chapter 2, verse 14, he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their table. And he made a scourge of, cord, uh, of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Now, you can imagine that this did not sit well with the religious leaders. And so there is confrontation at the end of chapter 2. In chapter 3, we are introduced to Nicodemus, who we're told here is a ruler of the Jews. And we're told here that this man came to Jesus by night. And this is where we had the whole discourse about new birth. Jesus says to him in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He was the first man to hear the most famous verse of the Bible, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Once he finishes the conversation with Nicodemus, you come to the end of chapter 3, and in chapter 3 John returns back to the testimony of John the Baptist where he again declares that Jesus is the Son of God. Look at verse 31. He says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth comes from the, up from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent, speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That is a pretty clear testimony as to the identity of Christ. Now, if chapter 3 is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, who is a high official in Israel, in chapter 4, you have Jesus who evangelizes a Samaritan woman and her entire village. As Jesus moves from Judea and he goes up to Galilee, the text says here in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if you know the history, he didn't have to pass through Samaria because the Jews would go around it. But Jesus had to pass. Why? Because he had a divine appointment. And it was to this woman where Jesus himself, for the first time, explicitly declares himself as the Messiah. Look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And Jesus said to her, I 
who speak to you am he. Listen, this is the first declaration of I am, and it is given to a Samaritan woman. Not to the disciples, not even to the religious leaders, but to Samaritan woman. And after ministering to the Samaritans for two days, many believed in him. According to verse 41, it says, many believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you say that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. That is a pretty credible testimony of Samaritans. So Jesus travels from Judea through Samaria. He goes up to Galilee. The Galileans receive him. And this is where he performs the second sign, according to chapter 4, verse 51. You remember there's a royal official there whose son was sick. And he finds out that Jesus is coming from Judea into Galilee. He goes to him. He implores him to come and heal his son. And Jesus says to him, your son lives. What was the result? Verse 51, as he was now going down, the slaves met him saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour in which he began to get well, better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And then it says this, so the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. And John identifies this as the second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Galilee, out of Judea into Galilee. Now in chapter 5, the scene shifts again, because now Jesus goes back to Judea. Because according to chapter 5, verse 1, it says, After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know which feast this is. If this is a Passover feast that John does not identify as Passover, then we know that Jesus' ministry lasted at least three years. Because if there are four Passovers, there are three years in between. If this is some other feast, because you have other feasts that are mentioned in the Gospel of John. You have the Feast of Tabernacles mentioned in chapter 7. You have the Feast of Dedications mentioned in chapter 10. So we just don't know which feast this is. If this is not the Feast of Passover, then we know that Jesus' ministry lasted at least two and a half to three years. But we don't know that. In any case, Jesus performs the third sign by healing a man who had been ill for 38 years. Look at verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Because he performed this miracle on the Sabbath, you remember, the Jews had problem with that. And according to verse 16, they began to persecute Jesus. And this leads to that entire discourse in chapter 1, where Jesus reveals his identity as one who has been sent from the Father. He appeals to the testimony of John the Baptist in verses 33 to 35. He points to his works as the credible witness that I have come from the Father. And he cites the testimony of Scripture. Look at verse 39. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Now this brings us to chapter 6. In chapter 6, John explicitly mentions the second Passover. If you look at verse 4, it says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. A large crowd, which was probably traveling to Jerusalem, to the Passover, gathered around Jesus, and there was the time when he performed another sign. You remember feeding of the 5,000. According to verse 10, it was 5,000 men, which means that there were probably 5,000 women and 5,000 children there as well. 
So the crowd was probably doubled or tripled, and Jesus fed them with five loaves and two fishes. Verse 11 says, So when they took the loaves, when he took, they, so Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Wow. 15,000 people ate and still twelve baskets full of leftovers. Remember what happened as a result? The people said, man, that's awesome. We want a king like that. And so they're coming and they, want to intend, they intend to make him king. And verse 15 tells us that Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. You remember it was that night when Jesus walked on the sea and came to the disciples as they were on their way to Capernaum. People search for him. People look for him. They, okay, where is Jesus? I mean, I like this free lunch. So they come to Jesus. They find Jesus in Capernaum. And then you have the rest of chapter 5 is Jesus' teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. You remember, this was the place where Jesus declared to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus declares to the Jews later on in this chapter, He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. And you remember that this statement did not sit well, not only with the Jews, but even with some of His disciples. Because verse 60 says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. That's verse 66. Chapter 7, Jesus again returns to Jerusalem. And in chapter 7, we have the Feast of Booths. In the middle of the feast, Jesus shows up to the temple when people are looking for him. He sits down and he begins to teach. And verse 15 says, the Jews were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? And Jesus explains to them that his words are not his words, but they come from the Father himself, because he says, I speak the things as the Father has taught me. He explains to them where his knowledge comes from, and he says to them, why are you trying to kill me? He confronts them because they wanted to kill him. And by the end of the feast, look at verse 37, famous words. Now in the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. As a result, some people say, listen, this is a prophet. Others say, this is the Christ. And others like, I don't know, man. Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Confused. Now, if you look at the last verse of chapter 7, the next section from 753 all the way through chapter 11, verse 1 you will see that it is in brackets most likely in your Bible. And the reason why it is in brackets is because this passage here is not original to John. This account is lacking in manuscripts all through the first eight centuries. Church fathers did not comment on this passage until the 12th century. Now while this passage is not canonical, it does not necessarily mean it's not historical. And we'll deal with these issues when we get to this passage later on, but that's just something for you to keep in mind. The rest of the chapter is Jesus' discourse with the Jews. In verse 12, you have another I am statement. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. You remember in this chapter, he confronts the Jewish leaders for their lack of faith, and he explains the reason for their unbelief and their desire to kill him. 
I mean, look at this pointed verse in verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Whoa. Jewish leader, the most religious people. Your father is the devil. In verse 58, we have one of the most explicit statements of deity. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was born, I am. What was the response? They picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Chapter 9 records fifth sign that Jesus performed. And you remember how Jesus restored the sight of a person who was born blind. Verse 1 says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And you remember how Jesus spat on the ground, made clay, applied clay to his eyes, and opened his eyes. And obviously, as always, Jesus did it on Saturday because he liked doing these things on Sabbath, right? And that created a problem again. And you have the remainder of the chapter where Jesus is using the illustration of restoring physical sight to point out the spiritual blindness of the religious leaders of Israel. And he confronts them for being blind to their reality as to who he is. In chapter 10, he builds on this and declares again that I am the door of the sheep and I'm the good shepherd. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. In verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He again confronts the Jews and tells them the reason why they do not believe in him. Listen to this amazing verse in verse 26. He says, but you do not believe me because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Your problem is that you don't belong to God. And because you don't belong to God, you don't accept me. Well, that is not how they thought, and that's not how most people think today. Obviously, they didn't take kindly to that. Verse 31 says, they picked up stones again to stone them. I think every time they prepared for church, they put some stones in their pockets and showed up. Like, we've got to be ready for this one here. They accused Jesus of blasphemy because he declares himself to be equal with God. And notice Jesus understood what they understood. And Jesus didn't correct them. Jesus continued on to proclaim to them, yes, I am the Son of God. Verse 39, therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. In chapter 10, verse 40, you see there in your chart that Jesus leaves Judea, and that's where he goes to Perea, to a place where John was first baptizing. And that's where many people come to him. And according to the text, verse 42, many believed in him there. This brings us to chapter 11. Chapter 11 is one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, and you know this chapter well because this is where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. This is where you have the next I am statement. Remember when Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Whoa, what a statement. Verse 25 and 26. Because you know this account, we won't spend much time here, but I just want you to notice the response to the sign. Verse 45, Therefore, many of the Jews came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. 
Again, notice the response. Some people see signs and they believe because those, that's what the point of those signs were. And others are hardened by them and go to the Jews. So how did they respond? They convened a council and they began to plot the murder of Jesus. Verse 53 says, from that day on, they planned together to kill him. As a result, verse 54 says, therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Chapter 12 is the final chapter in Jesus' public ministry. Six days before the Passover, when he would be crucified, he comes back to Bethany where he raised Lazarus from the dead. And you remember, that was the time where Mary anoints him with expensive perfume. Verse 3 says, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The following day is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Because it says, on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. And they began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. This was in fulfillment of the prophecy in the Old Testament that that's how Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. His disciples don't understand this at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remember that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. That's verse 16. Jesus spends the next few days in Jerusalem and he teaches in the temple. And if you reconcile this with other gospels, the account that you have in Matthew 24, 23, where Jesus is confronting the religious leaders, that's when that took place. John summarizes the response of the people in verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. And you might say, why not? And John answers, verse 38, This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, who said, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. Listen, they could not believe. For Isaiah also said he blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their hearts and be converted that I would heal them. That's why they didn't receive. God is sovereign over the salvation of sinners. And that's why we said in the beginning, unless God gives you eyes to see, you will never see. You can plead with God to give you eyes to see, but unless he opens your eyes, you will not see. In John chapter 12, verse 45, these are the final words that Jesus says to the crowd. He who sees me, sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. This concludes Jesus' public ministry. 
We'll pick up a pace here a little bit. In chapters 13 through 21, we have Jesus' private ministry. Because chapter 13 marks the third Passover that John mentions explicitly. Verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour has come, and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And you remember that this brings us to the upper room. In chapter 13, Jesus washes, washes the feet of the disciples and then explains to them why he did it. He predicts that Judas will betray him. In verse 21, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Then you had that whole discussion between Peter and John. And then Judas walks out. And when Judas walks out, you have Jesus who's left with 11 disciples. And to those 11, Jesus gives the new commandment. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you lo have love for one another. Chapter 14, Jesus spends comforting the disciples because he tells them, I'm about to go. I'm about to leave. But he says that while I will be gone, I will send the Spirit who will come and be with you. Chapter 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot see because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. At the end of chapter 14, they leave the upper room because the text says, get up. Let us go from here. And chapters 15 through 17 is the discussion that Jesus has with his disciples as they are on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. As they're walking, remember Jesus talks about, I am the vine. And he gives that whole illustration, chapter 15, 1 through 11. He again commands them to love one another in verses 12 through 7 and 17. And he encourages them to endure sufferings because he tells them that sufferings will come. In chapter 16, he continues to predict that the disciples will be persecuted, but that the Spirit will come and will assist them. 16 verse 1, these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogues. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. It's not going to be rosy. They're going to try to kill you. But verse 7, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. He predicts his imminent death and his resurrection, although disciples do not clearly understand what Jesus is talking about. Chapter 17 is another famous chapter, and that is Jesus' high priestly prayer. In this prayer, we're not going to spend time here reading this, but Jesus prays to the Father for the disciples. And you can see how he's interceding for those who are his own, whom the Father has given to him. And not only those who were the 12 for whom he was praying, or 11 specifically, but he's praying for those who will believe according to their word. Which means that Jesus was praying for you in John chapter 17. When Jesus finished his prayer, in chapter 18, we read this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine, of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. And you remember it is in this garden where Judas shows up with 600 soldiers where they arrest Jesus. Now what follows in John chapter 18 and John chapter 19 
is the series of trials that Jesus undergoes before his crucifixion. According to verse 12, Jesus is first brought to the house of Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and he was the power broker in Israel. According to verse 24, they take him from the father of from Annas's house, they bring him to Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Remember, it was at that time where Peter denied him because he was in that house warming himself by the fire. And from the house of Caiaphas, they take him to Pilate. And you remember that whole trial before Pilate that John goes into details, but it concluded with Pilate condemning Jesus to death. And as a result, we read in chapter 19, verse 17, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Three hours later, Jesus cried out in verse 30, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Remember Nicodemus who came to him in chapter 3? He along with Joseph of Arimathea, they take Jesus' body down from the cross and they put him in this brand new cave that was nearby because it was the Passover day. All this took place on Friday afternoon. And that Friday was literally a dark day when God turned off the lights. But what followed is a glorious Sunday. And that's where you come to chapter 20. You come to chapter 20. In chapter 20, you remember, they find an empty tomb. An empty tomb because three days later on Sunday morning, Jesus walked out of that tomb to prove to the world that, yes, everything that was written about me is true. Yes, everything that I said about myself, everything that I said about the Father is absolutely true. There's a testimony of the angels. And then the first person that Jesus appears to is Mary. Mary goes to the disciples and tells them that, you know, she's seen Jesus. And the first time that night when Jesus showed up to his disciples, you remember doubting Thomas was not there. And then he says, listen, unless I see him, unless I take my finger and put her in his wounds, I will not believe. Well, guess what? Eight days later, Jesus shows up. And we read this. Eight days later, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the door having been shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it in my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Is not what John was trying to communicate? Perfect testimony. Jesus said to him, Bless, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And this brings us to the purpose statement with which we began. Therefore, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Don't be doubting, Thomas. Believe the testimony of Scripture. You come to chapter 21, 
And in chapter 21, the scene again shifts from Judea to Galilee. Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, and he completes it there. And you remember, this is the Sea of Galilee, where the disciples go fishing, and this is where Jesus meets them. There is this amazing catch, amazing miracle that he performs. And then John tells us that, in that at that time, remember, Jesus restores Peter. Peter, who denied him three times, is restored by Jesus three times, where Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you even like me? And he says, you know I love you. And Jesus restores Peter back to ministry. And that's the whole discussion that we read about, apostle who's not going to die. And then he finishes the gospel with these words. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Wow. That is the gospel of John in a nutshell. And if you got it, then you have it in your nutshell. (laughs) Now, this was a survey from above. And in the coming weeks, we will walk the trails and we will observe Jesus up close and personal. Next Sunday, Lord willing, I will recite first 12 chapters from memory so that we can literally be there with Jesus and hear him speak so that we can experience, so that we can see for ourselves and feel for ourselves what it was like to hang out with Jesus. We'll do first 12 chapters because that is Jesus's public ministry. And once we get through the first 12 chapters in the coming year or so, we'll do the last nine chapters after that. Then we'll get into the gospel verse by verse. We'll begin in verse 1. And we'll go through it until we finish. And as I said in the beginning, our desire is that along with John, who wrote this gospel, we all would behold Christ and believe in him and trust in him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have left this record for us, that our faith is not built on some myth, but we have credible testimony of eyewitnesses who recorded these things to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we know that every word here is true. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, you would give us faith to believe, and heart to trust your words. We pray that you bless this study. For your glory we pray. Amen.